Welcome to the JIMD podcast, the companion podcast to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. Every fortnight, the podcast welcomes guests from the field of metabolic medicine to discuss recent advances in the field. There are almost 100 episodes on a huge variety of topics, so why not make the podcast part of your routine? But for now, listen in to this editorial roundtable. Hello there. So as 2023 draws to a close, I'm delighted to bring you something a little different. As the social media editor, I'm invited to the journal editorial meetings, and it's a great privilege to be a fly on the wall to hear our editorial committee discussing the many challenges of running a journal. However, I realise that the podcast provides a forum to allow me to share this treat with you. And so I'm delighted to say that I've recreated a board meeting within the podcast so that we can all be privy to what gets said. I have our editors-in-chief, Shamit Rahman of the Mitochondrial Research Group, UCL Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health, and Matthias Baumgartner of the Division of Metabolism and Children's Research Centre at the University Children's Hospital in Zurich. And alongside them, I'm also delighted to welcome Mark Patterson from the Division of Child and Adolescent Neurology, Department of Neurology, Pediatrics and Clinical Genomics at the Mayo Clinic, Verena Peters from the Centre for Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine at the University Hospital Heidelberg, Johanna Schock of the Institute of Human Genetics, Medical University Innsbruck in Austria, and new to the committee, but no stranger to the podcast, Sean Froes, also from the Division of Metabolism and Children's Research Centre in Zurich. Shamima, Matthias, Mark, Verena, Johannes, and Sean, thank you for joining me. Hi, James. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so it was actually at the start of last year that many of you contributed to the editorial Quo Vadis Now, discussing a move towards more personalised medicine. I wonder if you'd expand on this idea. And I have to ask, non tamen ibi sunt, you know, are we there yet? I do remember the editorial. And I would say that we're never there yet. It's a constantly expanding field. There are always more diseases to discover. And the subject of the editorial was about the advances from exome and genome sequencing that have led to the discovery of more and more diseases, which have been, we hope, helpfully classified in the international classification of inherited metabolic disease. Yeah, it has also been about the expanding use of reference networks in Europe that become more and more important. And with the genomic medicine coming into our practice, the variety of metabolic diseases ever increasing. And I think we're getting there. But one of the things we're learning is how important it is to integrate all of the data. You know, at my hospital, ill babies in the neonatal intensive care unit and in the pediatric intensive care unit now get rapid whole genome sequencing. So we have results within a few days. But to me, what it really emphasizes is how important it is that we understand the phenotype and wherever possible, we investigate the associated biochemistry because genome sequencing is a very powerful tool, but on its own, it's only a small part of the message. We really need the whole picture. And I think that's what we've increasingly recognized. Yes, I think the question of genomics is really two ways. One is we try to explain things and that it really is powerful. We have a child with problems. We can solve a good part of it now, although still maybe about 50% of cases, we do not really find a good diagnosis. Then we also find a lot of variants that we think, well, maybe they play a role. 
know, you heterozygous variants in two different genes known for causing recessive diseases may actually cause a digenic constellation. There are lots of questions where we really then have to go on to segregation analysis in the family, where we need biomarkers, where we need old-fashioned, important uh, metabolic tests. And then, yes, we really have a powerful method. The other way, trying to predict from genetics, I think we are a long way to go still because we have so many variants where we're not sure what they really mean, where we think, oh, that person must have a disease, but clinically that person is fine. So really to make diagnosis, fantastic. It's getting better and better. The next step to use it for prediction from my own experience doing genetic analysis every day, I think we may create more questions than answers. Speaking of questions, may I ask you, Johannes, and my colleagues, since we publish a lot of papers that are in the overall field of omics, which really means getting huge data sets, which are often agnostic and require machine learning, if you will, or artificial intelligence to interpret, I think that's going to play a big role in understanding the complexity of the genome and its expression. But I wonder, maybe my colleagues could comment on that. It's probably underused. I'd love to have good artificial intelligence to help us interpret our variants. We rely on databases which are not always correct. We rely on publications which are not always correct. So then we are again with the journal. We really try to work hard to make sure that what we publish is correct and that it's a reliable help to our readers. That's why we like good cohort studies, good clinical descriptions, good phenotype-genotype correlations, because that's really, really helpful to help us make the right diagnosis in the individual case. So we do have a responsibility for the clinical care in everyday practice in the journal. I think going back to Mark's question, I think that natural language programming methods will be helpful in understanding the data that we're faced with in these large data sets. But we first have to learn as humans what some of these variants mean. And certainly for me, one of the big surprises in recent years are pathogenic variants in genes that we thought would only cause recessive diseases because of deficiency of the encoded protein. Actually, we're discovering more and more de novo, presumably dominant gain of functions in those proteins leading to disease. And I don't think that we really understand those mechanisms yet. And there's a bit more human learning to do, perhaps hand in hand with machine learning. Yes, and I really think we underestimate the functional relevance of different variants in the same gene. We think, is it pathogenic or not? And really, a missense variant in the upper B gene may cause elevated or reduced cholesterol levels. We have so many effects for individual single nucleotide changes, which we do not really record in the databases yet adequately. And that may actually give us the wrong interpretation. Variants can be dominant and can be recessive in the same amino acid in the same gene. And we do not sufficiently address this aspect in our variant databases to the detriment of our patients. Yeah, because it's just a lot of work. Each single variant is a lot of work. And with the multiomics, which might be of some help at some point, we're just at the start at this point, I think. Yes. So it's interesting that you started talking about the use of artificial intelligence. Obviously, you've alluded to the fact that what you get out is only as good as what you've put in. 
most recently you all came together to write about the use of artificial intelligence, not so much in data analysis, but rather in publishing. And I guess it's trying to understand this is one of those things that, like Christmas, it's coming, whether you're ready or not. So how do we deal with artificial intelligence within a, a publishing landscape, not so much within a, within a data analysis landscape? How do we use this resource in a good way? All these large language models need a lot of attention and it remains exciting. And the development is incredible fast. So we have to think about how we can address it. And we started to think about what does it mean, for example, to include ChatGPT or other large language models as an author. And we decided that this is not a good solution and it's inappropriate because ChatGPT cannot be responsible for the content of scientific studies. So I think we have some clear answers yet. But still, the progress is very, very rapidly going onwards and we always need to be aware of this and find solutions every time. And has anyone noticed anything coming through that clearly has been uh, perhaps drafted within an AI engine? Is it something that you've all been aware of? Or? I guess we don't know, but we're not aware of it. If the AI engine does well, I guess we won't notice, right? Actually, a positive side is that the artificial intelligence allows people who are not native speakers to create nice manuscripts which are comprehensible. Sometimes we receive manuscripts which are not, which is not uh, due to lack of knowledge, but lack of language skills. So that's a good side. And the other thing is we publish biological data, which cannot be generated by ChatGPT either. And for reviews, I think we tend to like submissions from people who have some evidence of personal experience with a particular topic. And we got a number of review articles where someone completely unknown in the field would write a review. We would be more cautious or skeptical in accepting that. If you don't have personal experience, I think it's not worthwhile sending review to JMD. Publish something that's data-driven, patient-driven, a good cohort study, and then we will be very happy to get a nice overview. And I'm sure you don't need ChatGPT to write it. So there is a role for the use of these large language models, perhaps for drafting a manuscript for a non-native English speaker. How does a, an author go about that? Do they then subsequently credit the the rewrite within their own submission? I think most of the major journals have decided that ChatGPT cannot be a co-author. And I don't know how authors might credit ChatGPT in other ways, but we would have concerns about using LLMs as they are at the moment because they are actually bound in time and they're not current. So they have the information that's in them that's not being updated. They're not able to credit their sources and that does make them of limited use, I would say. Although, as others have alluded to, we can't really tell as human beings whether something was written by a machine or not at this point in time. But can't you just give your text in the best English that you've written, give it to ChatGPT and tell him, please rewrite in proper English? You can do that. And then the, the content is your content, right? Or will ChatGPT change the content? Well, sometimes it does. I mean, you can try it out yourself. Sometimes you find some surprising new angles that are not true. 
So yes, you need to understand what ChatGPT produces. And I think we discussed that we would like authors to give the fact that they use ChatGPT in writing the article in their background statement on how did they produce the article. Just like a conflict of interest statement, you should say, yes, I've used ChatGPT. And if someone is a non-native speaker and the content is fine, I would not worry about it. I agree. I, I would agree with Johannes too. And I think that is a, a strength as long as it's not being used to generate the content, because Shamima has already alluded to the fact that that's the danger. It's a limited data set, which can be misinterpreted. It was interesting. One of my colleagues who leads the AI in our department gave a grand rounds just a week ago where his entire talk was generated by AI. And he had wonderful, fantastical images, which were completely littered with spelling errors because the uh, <laughs> the AI made beautiful images in this particular model, but couldn't get some very basic spelling correct, for example. And he used it to illustrate that weakness. So I think it's a tool which can be useful for some authors. And some people write better than others. I think that's natural talent. And I think if the content is appropriate and original, personally, I don't have a problem with people using this as a tool to assist them in expressing themselves. But I think it has to be very clear that that's how they're using it, not to generate content, not to generate references to the literature, because we know that at least in their current forms, these tools are error prone. But I have to admit that having seen samples and even tried generating some myself, to decide whether a particular submission has been generated by an individual or by one of these programs can be very, very difficult, if not impossible. So our official position is they're not a co-author, but they could redraft your manuscript if they're not creating new content. Is that where we stand? Yes. Yeah, that's our language. And that should be an acknowledgement. Okay, well, let's move on to something perhaps a little bit less controversial. And that's our move to online only. I've just seen that the website's updated, so it's flagging this to everyone now. In fact, I think we've probably seen the last print copy of the JIMD ever with the November issue. I mean, I recently conducted a survey, albeit online, and no one said they actually read the print version exclusively. And the majority of people only read the journal digitally. Do you think the loss of a physical journal will be a non-issue or is it going to be a big problem? I think it'll be a non-issue. You know, I'm, as far as I'm aware, the oldest member of the editorial board. So uh, when I was a young doctor a long, long time ago, I looked forward to the arrival of the weekly journal. I, I liked reading it, but I read almost exclusively online. When I do receive the print journal, I like to look at it and read through it. But the vast majority of my reading is now done online. And certainly the younger generation of physicians, I think, uh, read differently. I think most of them do not read on a weekly basis. I think they tend to read about subjects as the need comes up and they utilize online resources to do that. Sometimes even during rounds, they'll be uh, fact-checking me, which is uh, which is a good thing, I think, usually. I think that we can only celebrate some of us may feel a little bit nostalgic about the loss of the print journal, but it is a wonderful thing to be doing our little piece to save the planet and um, reducing the consumption of paper is good. Well, I belong to the nostalgic people. On my back here, I can actually show it, is all the issues of the JMD from the first edition many decades ago. So I will be nostalgic. I save a little money for the book binding. I have a little problem with the concept because having access to articles depends where you live and what your resources are. 
And if you pay for a year for an online subscription, you have access to everything. Next year, if you don't pay, you don't have access to it anymore. So it is a little problem if we have like the JMD articles, which are not open access or free access. And we may find that at some stage we can't access them. Even we in our university, we have several articles that are maybe 20 years old, which I just cannot access anymore in reputed journals for which we have more recent access from the last 10 years. Yes, but JMD is a journal which really publishes papers which you'd like to read maybe sometimes 20 years after they've been published. And if we don't make this available, we do not serve our community. On that topic, um, because we are actually the society's journal, the Society for the Study of Inborn Areas of Metabolism, anyone who is an SSIM member, of course, has complete access to the online catalogue of JMD journals. And so I would encourage anyone who's listening to join the society. And if you're in, in a lower income country, I think the subscription for JMD and for SSIM has been capped at about 10 euros only for the next year. So hopefully that will continue. The other thing to say is that in the longer term, we are signed up to Plan S, which is an open access publication model for JMD as well as the JMD reports. And so this will be fully accessible to all. I've spoken like a true editor in chief there. I, and I agree completely with the points Shamima made. But just to respond to Johanna's point, there is one issue that's important. Actually, there's an American author some people may know called Nicholson Baker, who's written many novels, but he also wrote a book called Double Fold, Libraries and the Assault on Paper. And he talked about the problem with many libraries and archives getting rid of their paper records. And the issue is, in what digital form do they store them? And will that digital form be permanently accessible? So I think that's an issue we have to be very sensitive to. And you may say, well, do we care what someone wrote 100 years ago? My answer is yes. Absolutely. I think it's really important that these archives are permanently available. So, you know, that's an issue moving forward. I think we all know if we don't keep up with our telephones and our computers updating the system and updating the version of the software we use, some things become inaccessible. I have slides I made 25 years ago I can't see anymore. So I do think that the move is in the right direction. I think it's overall positive, but I hope that those who are curating these archives will make sure that they will be permanently accessible. I think that's a, an issue for the long term and a very important one. And I should say that Shamima and I both work in the NHS and neither of us have glorious long bookshelves like Johannes has to store such an impressive archive on. My office colleagues might complain. And we, we move on. Like AI, that, that is also happening. But I agree, important steps need to be taken to mitigate the issues around access. I mean, can I ask briefly about impact factors? I know this is a bit of a dirty word sometimes, but where do we stand here? I mean, I know that I'll crow out these online when we get an increase, but then equally I'll go a little bit quiet if our impact factor drifts down a little bit. Do they really matter in this day and age? Depends who you are. Um, so I sit on the Medical Research Council's clinical training panel, and we are very much discouraged from considering impact factors in assessment of quality of research. And I think that's absolutely right, because if you're in a very niche field, you're not going to have the same impact factor as, say, the New England Journal of Medicine. But I know that this varies from country to country, and there are some countries where you have to publish 
a certain number of papers in journals with an impact of greater than five in order to get your PhD, which I personally disagree with. But um, Johannes, Matthias, what's your view? Yeah, in Switzerland, it's really the same as in, in the UK. We really are not allowed to use the word impact factor anymore. Although, you know, I think we all grew up with that. We passed our career with impact factor. So it's not so easy to get rid of it. So I see myself still looking where are we going to submit? And we still look at which impact factor. And the same for our journal. We are disappointed if it goes down. We're happy if it goes up and we have goals of impact factor. So we're not quite there yet not to use it at all, but we're supposed not to use it. And I wonder how this will go on in the next few years. You know, I think we have to take a more global view. I agree that we shouldn't be exclusively focused on the impact factor, and particularly, as Shamim has pointed out, we're a relatively small field. If you publish an important paper about hypertension, you can get thousands of citations. That's simply not the case for us. But I think there are other ways of measuring the effectiveness and the impact of what we publish. And there are now a number of different indices that are used, particularly now in terms, for example, of views online, things like the altimetric. So there are a number of different ways of looking at the impact, to use that term again, of what we publish. So I, I think we need to take a more global view. I think the way people consume this information has changed, as we've been talking about. So I think taking a more global view is really the way to look at it. And of course, I think in particular, as a society journal, the question we always have to ask, are we meeting the needs of our society members? Is our journal the go-to journal for society members when they have original research to publish? To me, that should be one of our goals, that if you're an SSIEM member, you want to publish in JAMD. And I think a great number of our members do that and do see us as the first choice. So I think that's another index of success, if you will. Yeah, I think we need quality and we find it difficult to measure quality. We certainly strive hard in the editorial team to ensure that papers that are published in, in our journals have high quality. But the impact factor can be high without much quality. So that's a problem. I think we need other ways where it's not the clicks on the PDF or the downloads or whatever, the citations that make sure that what you read is reliable, is well-researched, is well-described. And an editorial team also stands with their own name for the quality of the papers they publish. In my university, we do still use categories like the top third of journals in your field. You should publish in them. And we snigger a bit about some other non-natural science or medical specialties who publish in their own journals. And it's difficult to make sure that what you publish has undergone thorough peer review and is accepted as an important contribution to knowledge in your field. So we need other measures, and I'm not sure which are better than what we have in the moment. You know, I did want to make a comment because I think one of the things that would be helpful to listeners to the podcast is to know how we work as a team. And basically, every workday, we receive an email. For me, it's early in the morning, usually, with the new submissions, as well as the reports coming back. And as a group, 
we evaluate those. And I think it's fair to say that whilst we generally have a consensus, we certainly have diversity of opinion. I don't think anyone feels any compunction or embarrassment about having an opinion that differs from the rest of the group. And I think that's a very healthy process. So if you will, there's a peer review process that occurs when a, a manuscript is submitted. So before we decide, is this an appropriate manuscript for our journal? Is this an appropriate manuscript for review? And if so, would it be better for the print journal? Well, what is now currently the print journal or JIMD reports? So that's a robust process. I enjoy participating in it. I've got brilliant colleagues. I'm not really in their league. So I benefit greatly. I learn from them all every day. And I think this is a great process which benefits us, but I think it also benefits the journal. You've started to talk about review there, and perhaps that's worth thinking about a little bit more because I think the journal world seems very competitive, but there always seem to be new journals springing up. And I suspect submissions across all journals are increasing. There's obviously been an increase in the use of pre-prints, but to get these articles into print print, as it were, although now nothing is going to be printed, it's all going to be online. We need peer review and finding reviewers is getting harder and harder. Obviously, you all request reviews. Uh, I suspect most of you also review papers. How can we make the review process robust and, and future proof? Yeah, but it's really a difficult question because, as you said, it's difficult to get enough reviewer feedback and the quality of the reviewer feedback is sometimes quite poor and it's getting more and more difficult. And the advantage is from our field is that we all know a lot of people in the field and we can contact them directly and ask for a review post. And if we have different uh, opinions, we ask another reviewer for getting his or her view. So this makes it sometimes longer, the review process, but more robust. But I think there's no really clue how to improve that even further. And it's getting more and more complicated. No one has the solution to this problem. <laughs> well, I'll make one comment. Some journals have tried a different approach. For example, the journal Neurology offered CME credit, which is of some value to people it's required in the United States to maintain your license and to maintain your board certification, they dropped it because that wasn't the incentive. And I, I think the fact is that it's an important part of our role as editors to educate our colleagues, particularly our younger colleagues, that reviewing is actually an important part of your career development. Because if you review enough papers, you come to recognize quite quickly a high quality paper versus one that's problematic. So I think it informs your reading of the literature and I think it improves your own ability to write papers. But it's hard work because to review a paper properly, you need to be familiar with the relevant literature. If you don't know it, you need to go and investigate that literature. You need to check references and really be thoughtful about the data that's being presented to you. So it's, it's hard work. And we ask a lot of people who are basically giving up their time to do this to help the journal. I think it's always been, or for many years, it's been an important aspect of academic citizenship. But I think it's important that we find a way to, to educate the coming generation of the importance of this role. Because without having a, a robust peer review process, 
I think quality is, Johannes has emphasized, is at risk. So I, I don't have the solution, but I think it's something we continue to work on. And I think education is at the core of it. And, and we need to mentor people as reviewers as well. And I think probably all of us on the editorial board do that. We identify colleagues, ask them to review, and then review the review with them. I don't know, Jordan, if you want to add anything, Marcus said he was the oldest member of our editorial committee. You perhaps are our youngest. Have you got a similar perspective or is yours you know, reflective of your position? I mean, yeah, I, I guess I am the youngest here. And actually, I, I think I do much more than what Mark said. I think I learn every day from the other editors, from their perspectives, from their experience. So actually, it's been a huge boon to me to be here and actually to be part of this and to learn. And I think the learning curve has been steep, but I think it's also been extremely valuable. I use reviewing also as a way to mentor my junior members. So I only review papers where I take on PhD student or a medical student or, or someone to agree and we review it together. So I get them to write it and then I review their review and then actually submit it. But I think it is an extremely valuable process. I, I see it as Mark does see it. I see it as academic citizenship where it seems altruistic, but in the end, I think I benefit as much as the journal by actually reviewing a paper. But I think we do have to be aware we are asking for a good review. We're asking a lot of the people, right? It is, a, it is a big investment to go through the paper, to go through the relevant literature, to make sure that this is a really a robust study and give an honest answer. I think not all reviewers do that. And that makes it worse for the journal than if they declined in the first place. But those reviewers who are good, I mean, they're just so incredibly valuable to us and to the field. And I think we have to walk the line of not pushing them too hard. So not asking too much of them because we want to send every single paper to the excellent reviewers, but of course they don't have time. But we also need to sort of meet the needs of our authors. So we need to review in an appropriately short amount of time. And I think we don't always do that. I think we can be a little bit upfront about that and say sometimes the process is too long and there we need to streamline as much as possible. We remain very grateful to the many reviewers who do provide excellent reviews for us on a regular basis and who work as communicating or handling editors for the journal. And they do come from the SSIM community. And we do have a, a database within the journal editorial manager system so that if someone feels that they are a brilliant reviewer in the making that isn't being invited, do go up into that system and sign up to be a reviewer because we'd love to hear from you. Wonderful plugs that you're getting in Rishimimu. It's excellent. <laughs> Maybe it's worthwhile mentioning that I think a lot of the basic review is done in the editorial team because with five, six people looking at the submission, we really kind of sold what we believe is a good article, which is worth going into detail. And those where we as an editorial team think this is not quite the quality that we expect or where we see scientific faults, we wouldn't even send out for a review. So that's another aspect that I think is fantastic having our structure is that there are so many clever people that look at a paper and then we all find little bits and pieces where we say no that doesn't work or this is wrong or here is a major fault that you can't do anything about and then unfortunately we have to reject it so i think that works quite well and we hope that our reviewers see that the papers that we send them are worthwhile reviewing at least in the majority of times. And what Johannes has said speaks to that issue of quality. And if I can use American terminology, since I live in America now, that's the front end approach. But at the back end, 
We also look at our quality by asking what happened to the papers we rejected, because sometimes we're going to get it wrong. So, you know, we do look in that and say, did we get this wrong? Or was it simply that the paper is now being published, but in a more appropriate journal? And I have to take this opportunity publicly to thank Verena, who's been very quiet and is amazingly modest. But the work she does managing this journal and acting as an editor is absolutely extraordinary. She really keeps it running together with Christina in the office. So I think we really need to acknowledge that absolutely essential role she plays. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Undeniably, you're all incredibly clever people. I'm always very much in awe of you whenever I, I get together with you. But I wanted to, before we move on to ask about your Christmas lists and hope for the new year, I wanted to lighten things up by perhaps testing that cleverness and asking some questions to pit you against one another and perhaps against one of the greatest diagnostic minds of all time, Dr. Gregory House, MD. Um, so here's how it works. I'm going to provide a case history drawn from Dr. House's archives, and I want to see if you can make the diagnosis and who can make it first. Obviously, it's just for fun and also determine which of you holds the crown for greatest IMD clinician of all time. Um, I've assigned you all buzzer sounds. We're just going to test those very quickly. Can you also mention that I am not a clinician? You might be a massive House fan. Uh, who knows? Um, so just quickly running through your buzzers. Uh, Shamima. Uh, Matthias. Mark, Verena, Johannes, and then Sean. <laughs> so just buzz in as soon as you think you have the answer. So the first case is a mob informant who falls into a coma whilst under police protection. He is found to have liver dysfunction, which is initially put down to hepatitis. On further investigation, it becomes apparent that he became sick after his brother brought him a large bowl of pasta. Raman, UK. Citrin deficiency. Oh, it's a little bit too advanced, but you're in the right ballpark. Subsequently, after treating him using... Oh, Patterson, USA. OTC deficiency. OTC, correct answer. For one point for Mark. And what was on the pasta? Oh, it was just a large, large amount of pasta. He also became sick when he was given meat. Yeah, I heard the carbs. And <laughs> <laughs> I've got my point, so I can relax now. Where well, it could all turn around in the, uh, in the next four questions. In the second case, the son of a coma patient becomes unwell. The son is found to have akinetopsia or motion blindness and subsequently develops seizures. He goes on to develop heart, liver and kidney involvement. On further investigation, there are a series of early deaths in the family via the maternal line, usually related to Raman, UK. Golly, this is a mitochondrial disorder. <laughs> it is mitochondrial. You're just going to have to narrow it down. I believe there are lots of them. Which one are you going to give me? Can you repeat his, his presenting symptoms? I feel like you're just buying time now. So he's 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 got motion blindness and then seizures. He has heart, liver and kidney involvement. Patterson, US. Milas. Has he got Milas? It's not, not Milas. Does start with a mer. Uh, on further investigation, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just going to let Sean have a go because he actually buzzed. I would say it would be Murph, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, froze uh, Switzerland with a point there. Um, you've got to buzz in, Shamima. I don't make the rules. Yes, you do. 
Yeah, yeah, I do. I do make the rules. <laughs> so question three, a fitness trainer who was previously obese and had gastric band collapses after a workout. She's later given a stress test on a hand bike, but despite feeling comfortable, goes red in the face and then collapses without a pulse. There was no irregular cardiac rhythm prior to her collapse. She was asked for a stool sample. It was noticed to float in water and she subsequently developed a peripheral neuropathy, bleeding and hallucinations. She continues to... Raman UK. No, no, it's not. Uh, she continues to become more unwell before being offered some cake, which leads to an improvement in her symptoms. And it's subsequently determined that a high carbohydrate diet may be beneficial. And she stopped this when she got her gastric band. Now, no one's going to come in on that one. Uh, porphyria? It is a porphyria. Can you guess? AIP. No, it's a hereditary corporate porphyria. I'll yeah. give you half a mark. Okay. We've got two to go. There's still <laughs> everything to play for. Uh, a video gamer stops playing because he says that his hands feel like they're on fire. During further investigation, he develops chest pain and shortness of breath and is found to have ventricular hypertrophy. He stops. <laughs> Raman, UK. Fabry disease. Fabry disease, correct? I've got Mark's work. disease. <laughs> 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 is that you? Yeah. I got your disease, so I guess it's fair. <laughs> I said it first. <laughs> I didn't say why I got it. But you, but you didn't buzz. It's, it's a standard quiz show rule. Final case then. Uh, a woman develops sudden sensitivity to loud noises and intense pain in her ears. She subsequently is found to have an arrhythmia. She then goes on to have um, evidence of a mood disorder manifesting from adolescence. She has brittle bones, renal problems, and then develops a bleeding from esophageal varices secondary to liver disease. And on removal of her nail varnish, she is found to have blue cuticles. Switzerland. Wilson's disease. Wilson's disease. And so, Sean, despite having said you're the only non-clinician in the group, it does seem that you are a, a closet house fan. And after a quick tally, I make you our winner and subsequently our new editor-in-chief. Uh, I think that's what we've agreed. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, as my first order, I guess I will fire all the people who are actually clinicians and worse than you at this. Um, well, I'm, I'm not sure we'll ever try that again, but perhaps we could wrap up with your expectations for 2024. What is it you hope we'll be hearing more about within the journal? Well, we're always excited to see new dynamic research from the field. These original articles are what we live for. So please send them to us. We always like uh, functional studies going into more detail than just uh, giving a mutation and a clinical story in a number of patients. So function and pathomechanisms is always nice. And to expand on what Matthias said, I think using multiomics to really understand the metabolic networks better, I think we're just beginning to do that. And I, I think that's in our future what's going to really help us get to the bottom of metabolic diseases to understand the the variation which is not explained by the nucleotide variants themselves so i think that's where we're going to make progress and i'm really excited about that i really appreciate functional validation studies i mean they can be multiomic and i think more and more they will be but really validating in cell or hopefully animal models findings. I think I really appreciate these so that we we can really say this is a mechanism and identifying new mechanisms. And I think that even includes, I would say, negative result studies. So we do get few submissions of negative results. I always appreciate those. I think we don't always publish them, but the ones where you can see that they did a really good job of characterization, even if it wasn't the result that you wanted or expected, I think um, those are really valuable for us and, and for the community. And I think those we're happy to publish. 
I always like uh, large cohort studies. That's what I really think is underestimated. It's a lot of work to get together a large number of patients, characterize well clinically, biochemically, genetically, and describe how treatment and prognosis was, because that's what we really need. Um, there's also the Garrett Award, which is given every year to the best paper in that respect. And I think JMD is the best journal to really send your large cohort studies to. And we cherish them. They are important. And we appreciate the work you do. If no one else does, we do. Well, thank you all for humoring me. I suspect it'll now be another three years before I can lure you all back to the podcast. Um, in the meantime, if you'd like to read either of the editorials mentioned, then please click the links in the podcast description or go to the journal web pages and search for Quo Vadis Now or ChatGPT. And all that remains for me is to say thank you to my good-natured and very obliging guests, Shamima, Matthias, Verena, Mark, Johannes and Sean. Thank you once again for your time. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. Thank you, James, and happy holidays. And to you too. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. 